Welcome to the Conic Blueprint, where we talk about topics in the recruiting and staffing industry with the end goal to help improve people's lives. I'm Jen Fitzke with my co-host, Tom Gettle. This podcast is brought to you by Conic, a technical recruiting company focusing on architecture, engineering, and manufacturing positions in the Midwest. Find out more at conicnetwork.com. The second episode of the Conic Blueprint podcast. And we're focusing today on what's to come in the supply chain in 2022 and 2023. We have a special guest today, Emily Labrasser. Emily brings extensive supply chain expertise, including 14 years with Cargill in various roles. And in 2020, she co-founded Waypost Advisors, a supply chain consultancy focusing on mid-market businesses. We're excited to have Emily join us today to discuss companies continuous supply chain disruptions and what you can do to mitigate the risks ahead and create opportunities for your company. We invite our live viewers to leave your questions in the chat and we'll answer them later on in the session. Emily, welcome to the Conic Blueprint Podcast. Thanks so much, Jen and Tom. I really appreciate the the opportunity to talk to you today. Yes, good to have you. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And in talking to you, you clearly have a strong passion for all things supply chain, Emily. Why do you love this area so much? Great question. I have to really dig deep into myself for this. And I think it comes from a compulsive need to solve problems and also a little bit of a thrill seeker personality too. It's it's supply chain is an ever giving space of, of challenges and fun and stimulation and it's always moving. And so I think some of us fall into it and just really kind of fall in love with that fast pace decision-making, but also the challenges, the challenges that come up and and keeping our minds fresh and active around how we problem-solve those things, really being able to kind of see the the positive impact that that we can have. The other thing I would say, and I think this is especially true now, is it's ubiquitous. Their supply chains are literally everywhere. Even service industries can use aspects of supply chain properties, which I just think is really cool. So it's it's fun to try to pick through how everything looks and it, it kind of keeps that passion alive. So great question, Jen. Thanks. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome, Emily. And uh, we wanted to turn it over to you to go through a uh, presentation around the path forward. What's the common supply chain for 2022 and 2023? And for the people listening live, feel free to add your questions into the chat. We'll Try to get those as quickly as possible. There is a little bit of a delay between uh, actual live and what shows up on LinkedIn, maybe 20 or 30 seconds. So it might be a, a lag there. We'll try to get to your questions as much as we can. Feel free to drop those during the presentation here with Emily. And then towards the end, there'll be a space for uh, Q&A as well. So Emily, take it away. So I will do my best today to attempt to read the tea leaves and the crystal balls and predict the future, <laughs> and, and we'll see how things go. Mark your calendars for 12 months out, and we'll see how right I was. Um, <laughs> so a little about me first. So I co-founded and a managing director with my partner, Rob Kress, of uh, Wavepost Advisors. I have 16 coming on 17 years of experience in working in supply chains. I started exporting frozen and fresh meat products from the U.S. to Mexico and also um, in containers from countries like Brazil to Russia and China. So international container logistics and then moved into container freight procurement. So staying in that kind of transportation and logistics, but with more of a, a procurement lens and making sure that we had the best portfolio of container freight. 
I moved into supply chain planning. So I've done the end-to-end forecasting, inventory strategy, stock strategy, inventory management, supply planning, materials replenishment planning, capacity modeling, and sales and operations planning, which is really kind of my passion space is the supply chain planning suite, as I call it. I did do a short two-year stint in plant operations and continuous improvement, which I loved. I loved putting on my, my bump cap and my steel-toed boots and going into the plant and actually seeing how stuff worked. And I'd assume this that resonates with this crowd probably from a manufacturing perspective. So I've had very tactical roles from early in my career all the way up to being the supply chain director for a large business unit at Cargill and having a team of almost 200 people and, and kind of being more in that strategic area. I, I did leave Cargill in 2020 to start working for Waypost. And my passion was really to downsize a little bit and really get back to making that impact at a very specific level and being able to provide that expertise and make it more accessible for companies, smaller companies, not all of them that small, but smaller than Cargill. So that was just a foray into kind of a new space for me and wanted to give it a try. And it just happened to align with 2020, ever the most interesting year I think we've seen in a long time and, and has been a really interesting space since. About me personally, I live in the Twin Cities with my husband and our four and a half year old daughter. I really love anything having to do with being outside, whether in Minnesota winter or summer. I'm a passionate snowboarder. I've snowboarded for um, almost 25 years at this point. I love to get out to the mountains, but anywhere I can get to snow, I'm happy. Um, And then really anything else, hiking, biking. I love to paint and build gingerbread houses with my daughter. Those are some of our favorite pastimes. And her name is Aurora. So a little about me. And now we'll launch into the storyline of supply chain for the last two plus years. And how did we get here? Before I go forward, any questions or any interjections? Uh, no, nothing. Uh, nothing showed up in comments yet. Okay. Sounds great. I'll try to remember to take a pause after each slide. So we'll talk a little bit today about how we got here. We won't focus too much on that because we've lived it for the last two plus years and try to make a projection on when will it get better and what lies ahead. And I think a, a, a very valuable part of the conversation today is where to focus improvements from a supply chain perspective. And then we can go ahead and open the topics and I'm, I'm happy to ask questions I, or to answer questions. I also am okay answering questions as we go. So if you have something that pops up, feel free to throw it in the chat and Tom or Jen will let me know and we can take a pause. So if you haven't heard of it, one of the theories in supply chain is called the bullwhip effect. And what the bullwhip effect suggests is that the further up a supply chain you are, so if you think of the consumer, the end consumer, and think of a retailer, and then maybe a distributor, and then a supplier, and an even upstream manufacturer, there are many tiers in a supply chain. And the, the more variability that happens at the point of sale with a consumer, the stronger the reverberations get as you move up the tiers. So if you are a manufacturer of items that goes into something that gets made into something else and then sent downstream, you're going to feel the largest reverberations in that supply chain. And that's the concept of the bullwhip effect. And we'll talk about some specific examples there. Really, the the biggest factors that we've seen in the last couple of years is this uncertainty in demand and supply. So I'll go ahead and unpack what the key points of both of those areas are. 
and really demand. And we've been progressing towards this as a as a global society, but but COVID and the pandemic really exacerbated all of these things. Literally, consumer preferences changed overnight, and it was ongoing. If you think about it, in food, food is my area of expertise. We went from what was a food service channel, right? Cafeterias and offices, restaurants, everything that went into a food service channel almost evaporated overnight and switched over to a retail channel. And you think of the packaging differences. If you recall, milk was a problem. Meats were a problem. We'll come back to meat because the the supply chains just can't adapt quickly enough from that food service to that retail model as it changed overnight with the pandemic when we all went on lockdown. The other problem we see is, so now as a consumer or as a customer, when I go to Target, my favorite store, and I see the shelves are stocked out of everything I need, when they do have it, I buy as much as I can, right? And I think the infamous example was toilet paper. So now you start to see those reverberations get really big as people start to stockpile. And then the demand signals start to reverberate more largely as they get up the, up the supply chain tiers as well. So that really caused a lot of uncertainty in the demand. It also pushed demand into what I would call substitute goods and completely changed the patterns. So if you went into your favorite store and they were out of your normal brand, sometimes you didn't have an option but to pick a different substitute. Might be something you're not accustomed to or a different price point, but that moved things all over the place as well. And then the other thing we saw was an increased demand for closer sourced goods. I think my favorite example of this is I heard it was a really great success story for a local company that makes kitty litter. They saw a huge uptick in their sales of kitty litter because I don't I'm, I don't have cats, but the normal kitty litter brands were sold out at the pet stores. And so there was shelf space available for this higher priced but locally sourced kitty litter. And they just started selling like crazy because they were the only thing in stock. And so you think of how that changes from this company that sold X number of units on a consistent basis, and now all of a sudden is selling X times four, just simply because there, there aren't other options. But they also have the benefit of a, of a shorter supply chain, which we'll talk about shortly here too. So that's kind of what we saw on the demand side. Supply chains are always demand-driven. Whether or not we like them to be, they're always going to be driven by what a consumer will buy. And so that's the starting point for what really generates a supply chain. On the supply side, we saw extreme disruptions. So we've never really seen a dynamic where we have extreme unpredictability on the demand side and the supply side. We could not move fast enough to keep up with how the demand was changing. And I think an example that that hit home for me were the, the meat shortages. I think we remember going to a grocer and they didn't have meat. They were out of chicken. They were out of pork, especially was hard hit. They were out of beef. But then reflectively, you hear these stories of farmers euthanizing their livestock because they can't get them through the, the processing plants because the processing plants became a bottleneck, partly because they there's just so much capacity, but also because the nature of a meat processing plant meant they were very susceptible to COVID, COVID outbreaks and COVID shutdowns. And so that was just a classic and hard-hitting example of where the supply chains just couldn't move fast enough to keep with the changes. Labor, obviously, a lot of workers left the market. We saw a lot of people retire. We saw a lot of 
parents that had to leave the market because of childcare issues. COVID lockdowns and lockouts really impacted labor. And, and we're still living with, with a lot of those dynamics. And then just general bottlenecks in supply chains. I think probably the most memorable are the bottlenecks at the ports, right? And ships being docked outside or waiting outside of the ports of LA Long Beach for 70, 80, 90 days, just simply because the throughput of the ports just could not accommodate all the material coming in. And we see that on raw materials and also production capacities as, as production facilities continue to have particularly labor constraints. And then, of course, the cost inflation, the stories in particular of container freight from Asia, particularly China to the U.S., inflating from three to four thousand dollars per container to twenty to twenty seven thousand dollars per container. And the impact that that has on particularly tight margin materials like like low cost furniture and those types of things. Yeah, you, you might you may touch on this in a later slide, but if you wanted to, to comment and get your thoughts on is the the way that we buy has drastically changed even before 2020. I remember not that long ago, I was hesitant myself to buy anything on the internet. Put your credit card information out there, put your home address on the internet. And fast forward to 2020, it was easy to make that shift instead of going into a store like Target to pull up the ship app and order through Target. And then Amazon, if, if you heard about you know, potentially meaning with a particular product that you like, you're going to buy two or three of those from your app versus going to the store. So I think that that maybe compounded the demand side issue as well. Absolutely. And, and it will. I think any literature that you read at this point around supply chains and supply chain innovation is focused heavily on understanding demand because the projection is that demand is going to be uncertain. That, that's the new norm is uncertainty. It will restabilize. And we'll talk about that. Some of the factors that will restabilize a little bit, but it's, we're going to continue to see more e-commerce to your point, Tom, which is going to move around where supply chains exist and then geopolitical issues. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for relating your personal experience to that. It's, it's absolutely relevant. So I'm going to take a, a little bit of a left turn into the when will it get better? And this is a longer term outlook. So we're talking probably 10 plus years, right? And the reality in either case, long-term or short-term, and we'll come back to short-term, but when demand stabilizes, that's, that's when things are really gonna start to smooth out. And so back to that comment of that, um, that variability and unpredictability and demand is really what drives the rest of it. However, infrastructure increases and supply rebalances. So some of the drivers in, in infrastructure increases, supply rebalances are automation. And I think we're seeing this. In fact, I'm not sure how much of the audience is in the Twin Cities area, but um, Taco Bell just opened a fully automated uh, restaurant right in Brooklyn Park, I believe. And I haven't been there, but I have heard that it's been extraordinarily popular just for people to go see what an entirely automated food service facility looks like. So we're seeing a lot more push in, into the automation space. I mentioned this term closer shoring. There's actually a great Bloomberg and I can share it to the group after this, but a great Bloomberg article about reshoring, closer shoring from China. And I think that that is going to continue happening. I know there's been a lot of controversy about does that really happen? Will supply chains really rebalance? And 
it is happening and it is continuing to happen because of the costs. It's no longer as cost effective to have these high when you really look at the total supply chain end-to-end cost, to have these high variability, long supply chains is much more expensive than they look on the surface. Can I ask a basic question? Like closer shoring, does that just mean sourcing from places closer than China, like closer to the U.S.? Yeah, or wherever is your locale, right? So if you're in Europe, it would be uh, Europe, whatever. But yeah, so removing those long transit times and those infrastructure bottlenecks, you know, ports are bottlenecked to what they can put through it. So in our case, Jen, great question. A lot of that, frankly, is probably Mexico, probably Latin America. A lot of it may come back to the U.S. Sure. Okay. Great question. I think there will be more regulation to prevent these bottlenecks and the profiteering that has occurred from them. I think Senator Amy Klobuchar has pushed through some regulation around that. And I'm, if you're all aware of the, the large, in fact, we can see one of their container ships on here. You can see the little Maersk containers, but Maersk is the largest container shipping company in the world. And they made something outrageous in 2021, like $58 billion dollars. And their next closest year, I think, was maybe 10. I'm pretty sure my numbers are directional. They're not exact, but they made a lot of money in 2021. Um, So I think that we're going to start to see regulation to prevent that. And then investment in infrastructure, which, of course, is not going to be fast, but increasing throughput in in ports. That's a very challenging thing. I would suggest that plans that make that sound simple and fast may be lacking the thought that goes into, you can't just expand a port. You have to expand rail. You have to expand roads. You have to think across all of these different things and all of these different ownerships, public-private partnerships and ownerships. And that's complicated. Not impossible, but complicated. And then improvements in labor availability. I, I think we're seeing this right now, but worker compensation changes, workplace improvements, those types of things. And then obviously geopolitical relative stability will also bring back kind of the stabilization. So that's kind of our long-term outlook. And there are in the appendix, I think we'll send out the pre- presentation, but in the appendix, there are resources to learn more about some of these things. So in the short term, what are our biggest impact factors? Maybe obvious, but interest rates and inflation, both of those things are having a big impact on consumer buying power. It's going to have impacts on real estate and construction. And you think of all the materials that go into those industries and it's going to reverberate through the supply chains, particularly, and I know there's questions out there. uh, Well, I'll come back to my question on um, recession, but what we will also see and we are seeing. So just even in the last couple of months, I think every single client we work with is starting to put pressure on their balance sheets and on their inventory balances, particularly inbound raw material inventories, not so much on finished goods per se. There are still many sectors that are struggling to complete their their finished goods because they're missing components, small components. But Supply chain lead times are shortening and demand patterns are changing, which means that if companies are not paying very close attention to those two factors, they're potentially getting caught with really heavy obligations on purchase orders and inventories, inbound inventories. We're going to come back and talk more about that too. Yeah. Yeah. If I could jump in, Emily, too, the one sure. I read an article just yesterday around the, the price of lumber uh, in the beginning of the pandemic. One of the first indicators of inflation was that the price of lumber double, probably more than more than double 
within the first few months. And recently over the past several months, it's come down over 50%. So they're kind of indicating like if this was one of the leading indicators of inflation and now lumber is coming down, you know, kind of back to your bull with the fact, what, what does that do to the rest of the market, the, the housing market uh, uh, that uses lumber quite a bit and, and other you know, surrounding materials for, for construction? If lumber is coming down, what does that indicate for the rest of the different markets that, that utilize that, that material? Right. A hundred percent right, Tom. And another big harbinger of economic activity is trucking, right? And trucking costs and truck utilization in the U.S. and trucking capacity. So loads per truck is trending downward truck costs. So not fuel when you strip out the fuel piece of it, but the, the truck costs are coming down the the cost of a, a shipment. And so that that is also an indicator of softening in the economy as well. And as we return to more normal activities and kind of pull out of real pandemic trends, you know, that will restabilize demand. Some of the wild cards, and this is why I think we're seeing variability in sectors, you know, commodities are a great indicator of of economic status as well. And we're still seeing kind of a lot of crazy stuff in commodities, right? Particularly those coming out of Russia, Ukraine, and then, you know, China's approach to COVID management is interesting (laughs) to use a word. I'm not really sure how they're planning to get out of it, but, you know, their zero COVID policy is going to keep them in lockdown mode for a while. So it's going to continue to disrupt supply chains for anything coming out of China. Um, So what lies ahead? So just even looking into the next six to 12 months, so anticipating the trickle down effects. I'm sorry about that. Okay, I'm going to try to kind of speed this up a little bit here. The rising interest rates just means that money is getting more expensive. It's getting more expensive for consumers. It's getting more expensive for companies and it's reducing buying power as, as does the inflation. There's also pressure on regulatory bodies to start calling in some of their unhealthier loans. This was a, an interesting dynamic that I learned a few months ago. A lot of loans that maybe were not ideal had kind of been allowed to keep rolling forward through the pandemic, right? Because nobody wanted to pull loans out from under a company that was struggling in the pandemic. But there has to be a rectification of that. And there is starting to kind of come a point where banks are looking at some of these loans that haven't met their covenants and starting to call them in. And so that just means money is getting harder to get. And then with the geopolitical instability and the uncertainty around recession and this question of soft landing or fall off cliff from a recession perspective, you know, there's more anxiety around spending both from a consumer perspective, but also from a company perspective. And what we tend to see there is hesitation about investing, right? In particular, taking kind of longer term investments or investments in capital. There's a bigger push now for do more with what we have, right? Let's kind of defer some of this spend until we kind of know how things are going to feel over the next 12 months. And then pressure on buying and pressure on balance sheets. I have heard so many anecdotal stories of finance teams in particular, as well they should be looking at buying in balance sheets and really pushing on purchasing teams to start pulling back what they're buying and keeping a better look at that. I won't deep dive this one too much, but essentially, and this was back in from a, a February report, but essentially what this is saying is people were overspending significantly. So there was an inflation, a year over year inflation in personal income of 6% and a year over year inflation of consumer goods of 5.4%, which roughly netted themselves out. Spending, consumer spending was almost 14%, which meant that people were overspending their their salary inflations by 8%. 
And a lot of that, as you might anticipate, is probably stimulus money washing through the economy, which is coming to an end and it's starting to wash through and be done, but also people just in general overspending. So I think we're we're at that cusp now where we're really going to start to see changes in demand patterns just due to the inflation. So here's, I think, kind of the powerful part is where to focus improvement. And Tom or Jen, any questions, comments? Uh, nothing yet. Nothing yet. But, I'm just uh, observing it all. Yeah. <laughs> Taking it all in. Okay. We're pretty jump in. So speaking to supply chain professionals, to operations professionals, a lot of ops folks, I think, are are dealing with this as well. And then our friends in finance, supply chain and finance work closely together and understanding your balance sheet. It is harder to do than you might think. And when I say balance sheet, I mean... What is the value of inventory that you're carrying? Both what's on the floor in finished goods, what's work in process, what's on the floor in raw materials, and don't forget about what's on buy, right? What you've purchased with open purchase orders that you haven't received yet. Maybe the supplier hasn't made it. Maybe it's stuck in transit from from Asia or across the world. You are still obligated to pay for that inventory. And so... Companies that aren't able to really see that end-to-end and the dollarized obligations there, I have a feeling our, our supply chains and operations are going to start getting shoulder taps from their friends in finance, asking them, what are we doing about this? How can we make sure this is under control? So really implementing that data-driven inventory analysis, making sure you can see that and you can understand. So there are statistical ways, we're not going to deep dive it here, There's a statistical way to understand what is your optimal level of inventory, whether it's finished good or raw material, based on your demand and your lead times and a few other factors to say, this is how much money or how much working capital we need to support our inventory to run our business the way we need to run it. My favorite saying on inventory is inventory is not a feeling. I don't feel like I need this much inventory. There's actual math that goes into determining how much optimally you need without carrying too much or shorting yourself and impacting your customers. Future forward, I would say invest in in better visibility to inventory, MRP, material replenishment planning tools, and establish metrics. Make sure that you're able to measure how different things are performing. Even if setting a goal isn't realistic, understanding the trends. Are we overbuying? Get better at understanding what drives the need for inventory and take the time to course correct. There are really two key drivers. It's what is your demand forecast and how long does it take you to replenish inventory, your total replenishment lead time. If I need 20 units over the next 30 days that it takes to replenish, you know at a minimum you're going to need 20 units plus a buffer, a safety stock, to overcome that variability. And really getting intimate and understanding what drives that forecast and that lead time. And then keep in touch with your friends in finance on their expectations for balance sheet management. They may have numbers in mind, days of inventory on hand. They may have a dollar sign for capital that they think is appropriate. And understanding that so you don't get caught kind of off guard. As a supply chain person, one of the more uncomfortable conversations was when I felt like I either didn't have enough inventory, I didn't have the right inventory, and a finance friend came to me and said, I need you to reduce inventory. You know, that was a that was a difficult conversation, although not impossible. And we can help you understand how to have that conversation to make sure you're running an optimal level of inventory. Quick pause. Any questions on balance sheet management? 
No, no, but I think we'll, we'll definitely get to the follow-up question later. It's, it's, yeah. I, for me, one of the more interesting and, and anxious for our customers is, is that, like you said, it can take six months to a year to get critical supplies to, to manufacture a car, manufacture a trailer, whatever. In the meantime, supply and demand is, is going up and down. If you have six months of supply coming and then worst case demand drops, that's a huge problem for companies. It's, it's a really challenging problem. And there is not a silver bullet, unfortunately, for how to fix that. If you've bought it and your supplier has made it, it's yours. And demand changes significantly. We can we can come back to that. But the the best approach really is just to keep the pulse on the demand mm-hmm. and the lead times. And the faster you can convey that information through the supply chain, the better you'll be able to react to that. Mm-hmm. So great. actually, great segue, Tom. get better at supply chain planning. I mean, this is really kind of the meat and potatoes of where the value is in supply chain right now. Bolster your demand planning. And by that, I mean your demand sensing, your forecasting. To your comment, Tom, stuff is changing all over the place. And traditional demand planning has heavily leveraged statistical modeling based on historical patterns. And what we found in the last couple of years is that statistical modeling is a little less relevant than it used to be, a lot less relevant. And so if you read on on forecasting and demand planning methodologies in supply chain, it's moving towards this, this concept called demand sensing and really getting more intimate with what are the drivers of your ultimate, is it a consumer, is it a, a customer, what is it? what drives them to buy or not, seasonality, weather, other things. You can start to bring in aspects of machine learning or AI to start to correlate some of those factors with what might impact your your demand as well. That's that's getting a little bit more out there. But my comment being, if you're really not forecasting at all or you are, your signals are slow, if you only update forecast once a month, once a quarter, it's too slow. You have to get faster at that. We have to get closer to what's driving the demand and get that updated faster. Now is a great time to be making changes, frankly. Everybody's stocked out. Everybody's having to look at new things, right? And so this is actually a good time where an end user, a customer, client is more likely to say, yeah, sure, I'll take what I can get, right? As opposed to feeling upset by maybe changes to um, a methodology. So shifting from a made to stock method where you would keep stock of finished goods or raw materials to more of a made to order or an assemble to order, essentially it's a delayed customization strategy that allows you to stock maybe lower value inventories higher up in the supply chain and kind of limit your exposure to holding high cost inventories for longer periods of time. Really focus on those systems. If you're if you're not using a system for material replenishment planning or ERP or even getting data, data-driven insights, it's a good time to start looking at that because we have to leverage that, those data and analytics and those machine learning insights just because we can't can't do it the old way anymore. The other big thing that we see and we highly recommend is more of a collaboration and a stronger, a stronger relationship between product development teams, R&D, whatever you would call it, to sourcing and procurement teams and making sure that those two are partnering together. Because what we see a lot 
that engineers, R&D, product development are creating these fabulous products with components that are really difficult to find. They're either expensive, they're not readily available, there aren't multiple sources. So if you can partner and understand early in the design process, what are your risk materials and understand that from your sourcing and procurement teams, you can create goods that are more resilient to supply chain reverberations. Quick pause here, any questions, comments? It's interesting that, that that last point, because part of what I do is I recruit engineers and oftentimes not so much anymore the, over the last five years, I haven't gotten this. And I'm just throwing five years out there. It might be less, it might be more. I would get engineers that do their own sourcing. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's just part of their role. Yep, it, it's common. And I do think it's risky especially in today's supply chains for that very reason. You yeah. want to try to avoid being single sourced or having components or ingredients or whatever the case may be that are difficult to get or highly susceptible to price variations. Okay. Just, I was wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So general best practices, I'm going to move a little bit quickly here. General best practices, sourcing, when we talked about this, try not to be single sourced on materials. If you must be, make sure that your relationship with your supplier is managed very strategically, that you're very close to them. Because if you are not as important to them as they are to you, you may find yourself in a tight situation. Review your portfolio of finished goods and make sure that your SKUs are really valuable or strategic to you. And the reason for that is the more your finished good SKU portfolio proliferates, the more your raw material needs proliferate, the more inventory you have to, to hold and the more complicated your supply chains get. So really trying to keep those products uh, focused is beneficial and, and focus might be, mean different things for different industries. Leveraging these delayed customizations, right? So keeping your high cost, high value inventory delayed until the very end and stacking the less expensive components, also very beneficial for cost management. And then determine the right metrics for your for your business in your supply chain, whether it's, and there are slides in the appendix as well around service costs and cash, what do you want your on-time shipment to be or your order fill rate, whatever that is, cost per unit produced, cost per unit shipped. There's so many different things you can do. And then cash, common financial metrics are days of inventory on hand, which can be either a volumetric or a financial, technically DIO is a financial calculation, understanding your inventory turns, but really what works for your business. And then don't be married to those initial metrics. Only measure what's relevant. Keep your metrics concise and manage the number of them. The more you get, generally, the less they get used and the more administrative and problematic they get. So and be open to maybe this was the wrong metric. Let's take it out and add something new. Okay. And then my last comments here are pivoting your organization to act quickly and efficiently. And what I'm really trying to get to, I won't read through all of these, but probably the, the most important one is number two, improving the communication throughout your organization. We talked about if your demand signals are slow, if they're only updated once a month or once a quarter, essentially what you're doing is if you have to, to your comment, Tom, Jen, I can't remember who said it, but if you have to have six to 12 months of inventory in your pipeline because your lead times are that long. And now 
you've had changes in demand, but the organization doesn't sense that and then react to it for another three to six months. Now you have 18 months of inventory on hand that you may not need. And the sensing can sometimes be a little faster, but making the organizational decision to say, hey, something is happening with the demand, we need to downgrade it. And now there are implications for all these open purchase orders we have. Sometimes those decisions and the actions taken take longer than you might think. So I think that's the big piece of it is just recommendations around how to keep the organization communicating in a way that allows your supply chain teams to act quickly and also making sure that your supply chain teams know they can act quickly and they should, particularly when it comes to efficiencies. Okay, so except for the appendix that has all sorts of good information in it and you guys will all have access to it, that kind of does it for my overview what kind of questions, comments, or thoughts do you all have? Oh my gosh, thank you so much for walking us through. This is such a critical topic. It's at the top of everyone's mind right now. And I wrote down a couple of things, but one of the specific questions that we were thinking of is, what can we do as a supply chain professional to ensure that we're not overstocked if demand for our product decreases before that delayed inventory arrives? What can the listener do to mitigate overstock risks? You mentioned communication is so important and empowering your supply chain professionals. Is there anything else that we can do? Yeah, I think definitely. So back to understanding the demand signals and making sure someone is accountable for that, for understanding them and conveying them through. Understanding the lead times. Most purchasing folks are going to have a sense for what's my order lead time with my supplier when I place my purchase order until when they can ship it. And what happened in a lot of cases because of capacity constraints and labor, those order lead times extended way out. Well, now they're shrinking back down because capacity is less of an issue, either because demand or because labor is more predictable or whatever the case may be. And those transit times are shrinking, particularly if you're coming from overseas, they're moving a little bit faster than they were. So really keeping the pulse on that, if you're using an, an MRP system, keeping that data updated so that your system is triggering, understanding that those lead times are shortening. And then I think the other piece is trying to really derive those statistically set inventory stocking levels that leverage that calculation around lead time and variability and demand. If you don't have an inventory level necessarily set, you're going to be a little bit blind to that as well. But where I've also seen from an organizational perspective, where I've also seen some deviations are fi finance groups that are saying we need to reduce inventory levels and supply chain teams that are saying I can't do that for whatever reason, right? Either I can't cancel out of these purchase orders, which may be legitimate, or saying I think I need more inventory than that to keep our keep the parts coming in. And I don't want to be the reason we couldn't produce today because we didn't have enough of something. So kind of getting to a point where you can have those conversations, however that looks, if it's someone owning them or enabling the supply chain team or giving them metrics or incentives to manage the inventory differently, I think are all really important things to consider. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And one, one thing I'm curious about, I recently noticed that uh, Target is slashing a lot of their prices on items that were really popular in 2020, like comfortable clothes, like everybody wanted PJs and sweats because we're at home 24 seven and 
everybody wanted air fryers and different cookware because we're we're cooking at home instead of going out. So uh, companies like Target, uh, they're slashing prices on that and and deep discounts. But at the same time, there's still a lot of a lot of products that are are very understocked. If I were in charge of supply chain, I might be thinking like, okay, three months from now, what's going to be overstocked? What is going to be readily available? You know, there, there's only so much that that data can give you. It's really good to have a, a strong internal system to be able to to predict and do some analytics on that. But outside of that, are there any like indicators that you would think, hmm, well, if one particular item is getting to be overstocked, these others might be coming along in the next few months too. Yeah. It's, it depends so much on the industries. And I think it's a great, it's a great question, Tom, and it's what everybody is struggling with right now. Certainly anything that has a very short cycle, trend cycle, if you will, it is going to be a challenge, particularly if the trend cycle. So think of clothes, right? Clothes are seasonal in certain parts of the country. And we saw that. We saw issues where I think it was last year, you know, 2020 winter coats didn't come in until spring of 2021 (laughs) because they were delayed. So I think really, really understanding the velocity of the demand patterns and the trend changes and trying to, to understand that versus what are the lead times on those materials. I'm trying to think of, so there are, there are certain sectors where Supply is okay, but the transit times are long, and that's a that's a seasonality problem. Sure. There are certain sectors that we're seeing in the manufacturing side where some of the supplies have gotten ample, um, you know, supplies on bearings or wiring or other things. And then there are massive bottlenecks still on microchips and circuit board assemblies and LED light bulbs and fixtures and those types of things, right? So you also kind of have this unfortunate dynamic happening where there's a lot of whip building, work in process building in certain areas that's missing a very relatively inexpensive part to finish the, the finished good. And then we're starting to build heavy inventories on other raw material components where the stuff is getting more available. But there's a, a lag in the transmission of the build plans, of the production plans, because they still, they're still bottlenecked on production because they're missing the component, right? So somebody to watch that entire end-to-end and really kind of understand what are we seeing here? Like, we're saying we still can't complete these finished goods because we're stocked out on a printed circuit board assembly, but we're building these massive inventories of other parts what do we do about this, right? And make some decisions about how to address that. Right, it's fascinating, Emily. You've you're uh, giving us giving us a mini MBA. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like I'm listening to a professor in college. I'm writing so many notes. And... <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> you're being generous. Thank you. No, it's well, great. It's really it's great. interesting, right? It's great. great challenges. Very difficult challenges to overcome, and nothing like we've ever seen prior to the last couple of years. Yeah, it's been, it's been a really good conversation so far. And any uh, anyone listening in, feel free to ask your questions live. And, and of course, we'll let you know ways to get in touch with Emily. She's she's just a fantastic, fantastic resource and gift to our community. And, and Emily, thank you so much for being here. We'll wait to see if any questions jump in and we'll definitely get to those. We have time for that. But in the meantime, we wanted to um, 
wind it up and get to know you a little bit better, Emily, and uh, ask you a few Q&As for you. Absolutely. Let her rip, you guys. I'm an open book. All right. Awesome. What do you love to do most during Minnesota summers? Oh, good question. Um, I love being outside, but I would say my my favorite activity has come of the last four years. So my daughter being four and a half, she was born in October, pretty much when she was, you know, eight months old. And I don't think Burley recommends this, but we would put her in her little infant carrier car seat and bungee cord her into the Burley trailer and, and put it on the back of the bike and, and bike around. And I really do love bike commuting. And our favorite thing is my husband and I also really like craft beer. We're in particular, we're IPA fans. So nice. taking the kid to a, a brewery and sitting outside and coloring and coloring books and having a beer is uh, it's a great way for us to spend a summer day. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 great. It's nice to see so much of that reopening in the Minneapolis area. People out, people out biking around, going from breweries to breweries with their family. It's uh, it's it's great, great, uh, great summer for that. It's such a great city for it too, with the friendliness to biking and and the quantity of delicious craft breweries we have around the Twin Cities. Ladonia has a beer called I think it's called Hashtag Supply Chain Issues. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally gonna forget. Um, I'll have to look it up. But there was another one we saw, and I can't remember the brewery, but I think they call it hashtag shipping issues. So <laughs> we started to celebrate supply chain challenges in the beer sector as well. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What is your favorite music artist or band? So I don't have a favorite artist or band. But I do have a favorite genre that is, I'm almost exclusive. I listen to almost nothing else. And you guys might find this funny, but it's electronic dance music. <laughs> so, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so it's, I, I think it's, I'm hearkening back to my clubbing days of my early 20s, right? But that kind of heavy, like, dance beat. It, there's so many artists, you know, if I like five of their songs, I would put them in a, in a top artist. But there's Tiesto and Kelvin Harris and David Guetta and Dead Mouse and Alessa Orman Van Buren. The list goes on and on. And and yeah, that that's what I listen to primarily. <laughs> and I, I, I say it doesn't surprise me only because it's more popular than people think it is. It's not just one beat, right? Yeah. And yeah. We, you, it's on popular radio. You, you just don't realize that's what you're listening to. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I'm surprised when I stop listening to my, you know, little special playlists and like go onto a radio. I'm surprised how much I do actually hear on a radio. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. You must you must have been to uh the armory the armory in uh downtown Minneapolis, the music venue. I I have spent a few years, but yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. Great, great place to see live shows. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a great. And the last one I have, what advice would you give other professionals who are considered bran considering branching out to start their own business? Oh, that's that's a meaty question. Great question. That's a big question. It's a whole yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, so I, I absolutely loved my experience with Cargill. I would never give it back. It's a fabulous company. My my life essentially is probably 90% Cargillians. I say that both Cargill and ex-Cargill, like friends and, and professional connections. And I did just get to a point where I felt like it was time for a new journey. And I think what I'll go through the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
you know, the good is I feel as happy and balanced and aligned with kind of living my authentic me and living my values as I have ever felt. And that brings with it just this sense of peace. And I think it has helped me become a happier, more positive person. And that's been really wonderful. And it's been fun to see how that goes. The bad is I I didn't understand the impact of the uncertainty, right? So I think in a salary job, we kind of get into this sense of like stability and certainty. We know that paycheck is coming. And when you're working for yourself, it's not that predictable. And there could be, you know, I can see out a couple of months and then beyond that, it's very blurry. So there's always kind of that sense of like, oh boy, how is this going to go, right? And I think learning how to sit with that and to be more comfortable with that uncertainty is a really important skill for anyone who's going to branch out on their own. And that's probably the big caution I would give is just to know that you're going to have to manage that and know the impact that uncertainty has on you. The ugly, I don't think there is any ugly. I think it's a fabulous, wonderful growing experience either way, even if it's hard or if it's really rewarding. And so I would I would encourage people to really check with themselves on how they would overcome that uncertainty and that discomfort. But if they really felt deep in their soul like it was something they wanted to do, I would I would always encourage someone to figure out how to make it happen. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for that. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, that is Thanks, really excellent. Great advice. Thank you so much for all of your great insight and knowledge, Emily. What is the best way for our audience to get in touch with you? Feel free to email me at any point, emilyl at waypostadvisors.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Send me a message on LinkedIn. I keep close contacts on that. I think my contact information is in the deck. And so I'm, I'm always watching email. I'm always watching LinkedIn. Those are probably the two best ways. If you find my my cell phone number somewhere, feel free to give me a call. I am happy to have conversations about supply chain all day long. If there's anything you you want to question in, in private or ask questions about how we might approach solving something that you're seeing, I, I'm always happy to talk through that and, and share what we've learned and what we're seeing with other clients. I hope I'm a little nervous that there aren't any questions. Um, hopefully, Hopefully uh, that isn't disagreement. We have one. Oh, good. (laughs) Uh, What advice do you have to stay current and grow within the field? Fabulous question. Thank you to whoever was brave and asked that. So I have several resources that I, I go to for reading. So I like Bloomberg. I like the Wall Street Journal. I like news sources. There are also other supply chain resources. I'm just going to go ahead and pick out my favorites list here. Um, Supply Chain Digest, Supply Chain Management Review, Supply Chain Insights. Laura Sassir with Supply Chain Insights is a fabulous resource of information. You can find her on LinkedIn as well. It's C-E-C-E-R-E, L-O-R-A, Laura Sassir. And I really do just try to keep a pulse on, to keep a pulse on those different outlets for media to understand what's going on. That's probably the biggest thing I can do. But then also, if you can get out and network, I know this isn't realistic for everyone, but if you can get out and network or listen to the problems that your clients and customers are having, a lot of times you'll hear trends. It's just amazing that you'll hear it from one customer one day, and then all of a sudden over the next month, everybody's having the same experience. So that's a really powerful, I think, knowledge in, inlet as well. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks. 
Yes. Thank you for that question. Perfect. Anything else, Jen? Anything else, Emily? Well, I didn't really answer to the grow within the field question. So I think that's important too. The technologies are changing a lot. I would really recommend for people to keep up on the technologies, particularly around the supply chain planning suite, really understanding the forecasting piece. We talked a lot about that inventory strategy. Everybody has their own special algorithm, but it really kind of comes down to the same permutations on a, on a theme of calculation. Um, and then technologies are changing a lot too for transportation and sourcing and keeping a pulse on those. I will say I did the, so MIT has this fabulous, it, it was free. I did it in 2016. So I don't know if it is free or very inexpensive. If you wanted the certification, it was like $150 per course. And I don't know what it is now, but it was by far the best thing that I've done in my supply chain career was essentially to go back and learn the math and science and strategy and theory around supply chain, around planning and forecasting and inventory and negotiating, purchasing, sourcing, all these different things. And then they also have a technology course in there as well. I would highly recommend, you know, if not that one, it's an online platform, so it's highly accessible. You can do it for free. You wouldn't get the certification, but they would they allow anyone to audit the coursework. It was so insightful and so helpful for me. At a minimum, I would say try to stay in contact with some sort of continuous learning, right? Continuing education in the supply chain space. Sweet. We have another one here for you. Okay, I'm currently working in the procurement function of a utility company. How is procurement and planning different when it comes to different industries? How much do these functions differ industry to industry? Great question. So they're all nuanced, but I think that the underlying theory in procurement or sourcing or planning is primarily the same, right? So if I'm thinking of a procurement function, you could be doing things like and I apologize, I don't know utility very well, but you could be doing things like sourcing. Maybe you need mechanical parts or glass parts, metal parts, whatever. And so making sure that the sources of where you get those materials are matching with your needs, right? That you have multiple suppliers, multiple options, that you're getting the service level, the deliveries you need, and then doing what we call RFPs, requests or bids, requests for pricing. And to keep yourself competitive in the market, if you're beholden to one or two suppliers and they change prices, you really don't know if that's like appropriate to the market or not. You could say the same thing about transportation. So making sure that you're running those types of processes and doing supplier spend analytics and part analytics and, and really working on the supplier relationship management, particularly for those materials that are not commodities, that are more specialty and or you're single sourced making sure that you're developing those relationships and you understand how important you are to that supplier versus how important they are to you. Those are just principles that float across industries, in my opinion, but there are nuances. Perfect. That's great. Great, great question. Yes. Yeah, wonderful. Well, this is so informative. For, for being with us. And uh, we will definitely have this link will be live on the uh, Conic page on LinkedIn. So if you're just catching the tail end of this and want to rewatch it, it'll be live there. Definitely reach out to Emily if you have any follow-up questions, thoughts, want to connect with her on anything uh, supply chain. She would uh, she'd love to help you out if she can. Fabulous. Thank you Thanks so much for the opportunity. Yeah, and for the opportunity to, to talk to your network today. And 
you guys can all hear my passion. So feel free to reach out at any point. I will happily geek out about supply chain anytime. <laughs> okay. I hope everyone has a great rest of the week. All right. Thank you, Emily. You too. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining this episode of the Conic Blueprint brought to you by Conic, a recruiting company focused on architecture, engineering, and manufacturing in the Midwest. Find out more at conicnetwork.com and follow us on LinkedIn. Also, follow this podcast for the latest episodes. We're excited to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and let us know what you think. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time on the Conic Blueprint Podcast. Podcast.